The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal business tax or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com slash disclosures. Um, so uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, welcome back to one-on-one with ANZ. Um, we once again are going to be answering uh, questions submitted by uh, wonderful people on Twitter. Um, we are going to uh, go for about an hour. Um, we have a bunch of questions, interesting topics tonight. Uh, I will say we have two of my uh, all-time favorite questions we've had on the show so far, and I've, I've, I've bookended those uh, to the first question and the last question. So, uh, uh, so, uh, so, so if you like the first one, stay tuned uh, for the second one at the end. Um, and we will dive straight in. So this is the question that we uh, deferred from last week because I didn't want to do the short version. I want to do the long version of it. Um, and I'm going to take one side of it, and then I'm going to see if Ben wants to take the other side, which which I would find delightful. But we'll we'll see what he thinks. So the question is actually quite a subtle question, um, which is uh, uh, from uh, John Pedro: um, Which institution will last longer, Harvard University or the United States of America? Um, and you might think that this is like quite a straightforward question because you know Harvard, you know, for for all for for everything that it is, you know, it's it's quote unquote just a private institution. Presumably, those come and go. Whereas, you know, United States of America is one of the most successful uh, countries in the history of the planet. You know, countries tend not to disappear, you know, over long periods of time. So, and this, you know, this one certainly seems quite strong. So, um, you know, it seems fairly obvious um, that it would be, um, you know, that the answer would be the U.S. Um, I will make the argument that I don't think that's the case. I think Harvard uh, will last longer than the United States of America. Um, I will start. I'll make basically a two-part argument. So, one is I'll make I'll make the Lindy argument. Uh, the Lindy argument is that Harvard actually is older than the United States. Um, so Harvard was founded in 1636, which uh, was a full 140 years prior to the American Revolution. Um, and if you take the Lindy effect at face value, uh, the future life expectancy of any anything in the world is it's is it's is the the duration of its history to date. Um, and so future life expectancy of the U.S. according to the Lindy effect is about 250 years. Uh, future life expectancy of Harvard is 400 years. So if you buy the Lindy effect, uh, you answer the question right there. Um, but I would also answer the question from uh, another angle, and this is not the normal angle that people think about when they think about uh, Harvard, but I think it's one that's actually quite important. Um, and there's a couple of books uh, that I'm going to recommend that really make this point, I think, quite strongly. Um, the first is a book called um, The Making of the American Thinking Class, Intellectuals and Intelligentsia in Puritan, Massachusetts. Um, and I'll explain why I bring up this book by a professor named Darren Staloff. Um, and I'll, I'll tweet these book titles, by the way, because they're, they're quite long. Um, and so this book is, is, a, is, sort of a, is sort of an earth shaker of a book, if you read it. It basically talks about, it, it literally is the making of the American thinking class. So it literally is like the book about the creation of basically the prevailing intellectual climate and the, the sort, of, uh, you know, sort of idea formation in what is now the United States of America. Um, and it starts in the, in the Puritan era, um, you know, in, in, in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, it's it's a fantastic book on many fronts. Talks about sort of the process of how kind of the, the ideas ended up making America kind of came together, um, and the role that the Puritans played in defining the culture and the politics of, of what became the country. Um, and you know, the book like chronicles events that took place 400 years ago when the Puritans were here. And of course, what institution is right in the middle of the process of uh, the making of the American thinking class 400 years ago? Harvard University. Um, and so Harvard has been ground zero of sort of the formation of what, you know, some people call the civil religion uh, of the United States for, you know, for literally 400 years. 
Um, I just used a term called civil religion that might be a little bit confusing. That's the other kind of topic that's worth thinking about here is sort of the output of Harvard and his peer institutions, which is sort of the national civil religion. Um, here I'll recommend a different book uh, uh, by Catherine Albanese, a historian called Sons of the Fathers, The Civil Religion of the American Revolution. Um, she, she makes this very interesting point. She says, basically, the United States has a civil religion, which is to say, like, a not necessarily secular, but like very comprehensive belief system. Um, you know, it has the following characteristics. It has a Moses-like leader in the form of George Washington. Uh, it has prophets in the form of Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine. It has martyrs, the Boston Massacre, Nathan Hale. It has devils, Benedict Arnold. It has sacred places, Valley Forge, Bunker Hill. It has rituals, Boston Tea Party. It has emblems, the new flag. It has sacred holidays. Uh, and it has a holy scripture whose every sentence is carefully studied and applied in current law cases, which is to say that the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Um, our civil religion, she says, is concerned that America be a society as perfectly in accord with the will of God as men can make it uh, and a light to all nations. Um, and so th this is sort of like a core concept and sort of the idea of sort of what, what forms a society, what, what forms a nation, what forms a state is the idea of a civil religion. And, and basically, like if you trace this history again, all the way back to the Puritans and all the way up to the present day, sort of, you know, what is ground zero for the, for the evolution of the, of the prevailing civil religion? I think it's pretty clear that it's Harvard and its peers. Um, I would argue for good or bad, Harvard plays the role of defining the civil religion stronger than ever today. Um, a great example of that is that, you know, a very hot kind of, you know, very potent political topic right now that's sort of defining a lot of our, our politics is this idea of critical race theory. Uh, critical race theory was invented at Harvard in the 1970s by a Harvard professor named Derek, Derek Bell. Um, and so, you know, once again, you have sort of a redefinition of the American civil religion happening at and, and around Harvard. Um, and I think that, you know, this, this process to me seems as strong as ever or stronger than ever and quite possibly getting stronger over time and not weaker. Um, and so this leads me to the conclusion that Harvard will probably last much longer than the U.S. And in fact, I go a step further, Harvard will probably play the main role in defining whatever follows uh, the U.S. And so, Ben, uh, tell me if you thought that was completely nuts or if you'd like to uh, make a counter argument. Well, you know, it's a very compelling argument. I'll make a counterargument. I'm not sure that I agree with my counterargument, but I think there's a good counterargument, and I'll, I'll make a simple one. Um, so Harvard, uh, you know, has been a very kind of Lindy Strong institution, but it was um, it became Lindy Strong on a kind of uh, a couple of monopolies that are no longer in effect. Um, the first being, uh, you know, it was the place to get the knowledge. I, and meaning, like, literally, if you wanted the knowledge of the best knowledge of physics or mathematics or history or what have you, um, you know, before the Internet, like, you had to go to Harvard or a place like Harvard, and Harvard being the best of, of its kind uh, was the place to go. I remember when I applied to college, one of the features, very high-ranking features of colleges that you would look at was the size of the library um, because they literally, like, they physically had the knowledge. Uh, and that, um, you know, I think that advantage is completely gone with the Internet. Um, and then the second thing, which has been, like, a, a colossal monopoly, is this thing, what I would call the velvet rope plus the signal. So Harvard could educate, you know, 10,000, 20,000, they certainly have the money. They, they could educate as many kids as they wanted to, but they don't. Um, they, they keep it extremely exclusive, uh, you know, so that they, you know, which is kind of part of the thing that perpetuates 
their control of the culture, as you kind of identified. Um, and the reason that people must get into that velvet rope and <clears throat> will pay any amount of money to do so, and it will attract the kind of best and the brightest, is because admission is based on a signal uh, which they pull off um, of something called the SAT and the ACT. Uh, but they seem to be moving away from that. <laughs> um, and so that signal was very important because to people like us, people who are employers, would recognize that signal. And so if you had a Harvard degree, people would know that you were of, you know, at least at the very highest level of testable intelligence, and that has great value. Um, but if you don't have the signal and you don't have the knowledge, um, then real competition can emerge. Uh, and I think there's no question that Harvard is ridiculously overpriced for what they offer if you don't get um, those two things. And so I think that you know, new institutions with much better instruction um, and kind of a much better value proposition of much kind of smoother path to employment are going to emerge. And, uh, and, you know, if Harvard doesn't last longer than the U.S., it will because it was finally beaten by the competition because it sacrificed its monopoly. And, and the competition, Ben, in this case, would the competition be other universities um, kind of rising up that exist today, or would the, in your view, the competition uh, be um, new, I, new institutions? I, I, I think it would be new institutions that say, okay, how do we get the very best instruction, um, the, the very best people, and, and then you know, really uh, quantify their qualifications coming out so they can, you know, wherever, you know, look, whatever your best and highest use in society is, they track you right into it as opposed to, um, you know, right now it's a very kind of, it's a very blunt course thing to go to college. Uh, they, you know, they, they, there's no kind of alignment between the institution and then what happens to you after you graduate. Uh, other than, you know, you make large donations to the endowment, of course. Yeah, it's really striking to your point on the money. It's like really striking. It's, well, it both is over, it is overpriced. Like the ticket, the ticket price is arguably overpriced, um, you know, in the scenario that you're describing. Um, yeah. You know, but as you know, like a, a lot of these top universities now, I don't know if Harvard is all the way there yet, but a lot of these top universities with the really big endowments, um, they are committing over time to basically make undergraduate education free. Um, yeah. So they're they're, ba they're basically I guess it's the specific well no actually it's two steps the first this, the original promise starting you know whatever 30 40 50 years ago was there would be enough financial aid where anybody could afford to go they would just you know do means testing and I think some of them are not going all the way to just free undergrad and under the theory that right, the endowment has been so successful that they can just pay for the cost of the undergrad program. Um, without charging the students and the parents, um, right? The irony of that is, I think, as you identified, um, which is like they've chosen to make it free for the very small number of people who can go as compared to using the money to figure out a way to scale. Yes, right, right, right. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's so amazing how big the Harvard brand is and how few people they let in every year. It's just, and then the endowment, <laughs> I mean, their balance sheet is $40 billion or so, you yeah. know, I, I don't know yeah. what, exactly what it is today, but it's on that order. And, yep. you know, you've got $40 billion, you have a brand that everybody wants to use, and you can't scale your education past whatever it is, a thousand undergraduates a year. It's just really a remarkable uh, kind of phenomenon. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, exactly. In fact, they, they actually brag. Like a key part of marketing for the Ivy League is they actually brag at the uh, they 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 want the low they they brag on having the lowest acceptance rate. Right, and right. So they, which is right. it in a society that badly needs to you know high quality right. education for all of its kids. So it it, it right. is right. Right. It's, it's a very it, it seems unstable to me. Yep. <laughs> but we'll yep. see. Well, then if you push your argument a step further, it's like it is the ultimate engine of inequality, in a, in, 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 which, which, which is very interesting because like one is the institution is suffused by an ideology of egalitarianism. Um, and the idea that itself is like an engine for massive inequality in a society that increasingly cares about that. So it's, oh, like it's, it's, on, the wrong, much, it's on the wrong side of, of, our, of our modern civil religion. Oh, much more so than the things it criticizes like Amazon, which employs a million people, right? You, you know, like it, it, it's a bastion of inequality. Right. It's, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny how that's gone because you know I was having this conversation with my father actually this weekend, and you know my grandfather is a communist, um, but he was like a real communist. Like he wasn't a fake communist. He didn't like Bernie Sanders is a millionaire. He's got three homes. He's did. My grandfather, if he went into a restaurant and it had a tablecloth, he would turn around and walk out the door. He's like, I don't eat restaurants with tablecloths that's for rich people that's not like a real like somebody who believes in equality <laughs> these like this this talk 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 and then you know but i'm not going to live my life that way that's for you guys <laughs> right is right. uh is it's really something you know the kind of the the level of hypocrisy that we've gotten into on these things it's crazy right one might even argue these institutions have actually put up walls yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right <laughs> That they have, for example. <sighs> okay, all right. We should we should move right, to the okay, next yeah, topic. Let's, yeah, let's get off the political stuff. Probably I'll ben get ben myself in trouble. Ben and I are going to zero in. Um, okay, so here's one for Ben. Um, so uh, Ben Gross asks, how do you craft and maintain a positive culture in a high pressure environment such as VC tech startups? In your view, what blend of positive or negative uh, comprises your ideal company culture? Yeah, so that's, you know, I, I would say first, the first thing that, that I think is really important to point out is that, you know, nobody is perfect on company culture, and uh, especially the people who claim to be. <laughs> like, they don't even know how bad their culture is because they say it's perfect. Um, then you know it's really screwed up. And, he, and, and the way I know this is even the greatest geniuses of culture of all time, so and it, I'd say probably Toussaint Louverture, who read, led the Haitian Revolution, is kind of the greatest cultural genius that I'm aware of in that he, you know, he took a slave culture and turned it into a military culture that defeated Napoleon. And, and when you consider that, it's, it's the only successful slave revolt in the history of humanity. Um, like, that's an amazing cultural transformation. Um, but he made huge mistakes, um, mistakes so bad that he ended up having to execute his own nephew who planned a revolt against him. So, you know, Nobody is perfect on this. It's very, very complicated to get a large group of people to behave in the way that you want, even when you're not looking. Like that is just a very, very complicated thing. Um, and you know, there's a there's a really interesting book out called Working Backwards from a couple of guys who were at Amazon, sort of the whole way, and they try and explain the Amazon culture. But one of the things that's striking in their explanation is everything good in that culture began with them screwing it up. <laughs> Um, and you know, like the, the way they hired people, 
you know, they, they were, they, you know, way too urgent and they had to get the hire and like, we got to hire this person. And then they violated all their processes and then they screwed up their culture. And, you know, so they changed their hiring process and all these kinds of things and tried to systematize things. Um, so that's just the nature of it. Um, but I think the way you have to think about the trade-off is, um, you know, if this behavior that I'm going to allow to achieve the short-term business urgent goal or this, you know, satisfy this very ambitious employee or whatever it is you're doing, if it be, if this behavior that they're exhibiting that I'm allowing becomes pervasive, like how bad is that going to be? And can I fix it? <laughs> uh, you know, like after the fact, or, or am I just dead? And I give a good example of this was uh, a company I'm on the board of Okta, uh, which makes this identity management solution. Um, and so if you control people's identity, it's really, really like a, a strategic part of their culture is that they're kind of good to their word, that they're going to, you know, they're going to be reliable um, and that they're not going to get hacked. Like those are kind of, you know, which is always a trade-off between shipping features and, you know, reliability and security. Th those things are always at odds. Uh and early on, um, and so this whole integrity thing was just more important for them than it is for most companies, I would say. Uh, and early on in the company, uh, they had an incident where, you know, they they were in big trouble. They were missing all their quarters. They had to raise money. And they had a deal. I think it was at Sony. I can't remember now the name of the company. But it was, a you know, a big company. They had a deal. And, you know, as part of the deal, the salesperson had promised uh, the customer – a feature um, was going to be there in a month, but it really wasn't even on the roadmap. And, you know, they had to decide whether they were going to take this deal. And if they didn't get the deal, they would whiff the quarter. Um, but they would, everybody would have known in the entire company that like lying and bullshitting was okay. Uh, and, you know, Todd ended up saying no to the deal because he knew he, they couldn't deliver. Uh, they whiffed the quarter. They barely got the round done. So they did survive. Um, but if you fast forward, you know, they had this competitor, uh, one login who was much, much faster at shipping features the whole way. You know, they, they had gone the other route, you know, like whatever on security and reliability, we're going to, you know, focus on features to the point where like the guys at their venture firm, um, would like tease me that how much faster these guys did features in Okta. Um, but one day, you know, of course, one login gets hacked, and that was the end of them as a competitor. And, and so that's kind of, you know, on that trade-off, because it was so strategic to them, it made sense to hold the culture and not give in to the business urgency. There are other things, you know, cultural elements that are important but might not be as important as, as you know, the company's survival. And so, you know, it's always a trade-off. I can't give a formula because it's very situational. Um but that's the, you know, conceptually, that's the way I think about it. Um, a lot of CEOs, I know you talked about this in your book, but um, a lot of CEOs kind of think that it's their responsibility to be positive and optimistic in front of the company. Yeah. Like how, how much is, how much is, how much in your view is that a responsibility of the CEO? And then what, what are the obviously, you know, potential consequences for that or how to kind of balance that against other, other, uh, other factors? Like as CEO, I, I think it, what is true is you've got to, have a vision of the future that's exciting enough to get people to follow you, right? Like you're not a leader if you don't have followers. Um, and so, you know, and, and Colin Powell had a great line, you know, you, you have to, 
be able to get people to follow you, even if only out of curiosity. So you have to be able to describe the possibilities. Um, but I think that if you go past that and are just, you know, everything's great, we don't have problems, this and that and the other, then you start to really undermine your own culture because, look, people do know the truth. And so when you're so positive that you're actually not telling the truth, then you start to lose trust. And trust is foundational in any culture, um, in that if you don't trust the leadership, you don't trust the command. If you don't trust the command, you're not going to follow it. And if you don't follow it, then you have chaos and, and there's no cultural, any other value that's going to work because you've lost trust. And so, like, I think it's really, really important to be, you know, you can establish the possibilities and be very honest about the current situation. Um, but you don't want to, you know, you, you don't want to kind of get it to the point where people go, well, he's saying that because... Of course, he's going to say that because he doesn't want us to quit. Like once you get into that mode, um, you're in a very, very dangerous territory culturally. Right. Right. Great. Um, okay, good. And the next one also for Ben. Um, Richard Pickering asks, what determines whether a startup should run lean or fat? Uh, <laughs> it's something Ben and I have talked about a lot over the years um, yeah. and argued about a lot. Um, generally speaking, um, do you see certain established operating philosophies, for example, the startup method uh, being overzealously applied when maybe other, you know, maybe either other approaches are more just a company-specific approach would make more sense? And, and Ben, why don't you start with the with the lean and fat? We'll take it from there. Yeah. So let me let me just kind of explain what the lean startup method is and and why, or just you know, kind of a brief. And I would highly recommend the books from you know Eric Rice and uh, Steve Blank. They're amazing books um, and just a phenomenal amount of very hard to gain knowledge in those books. So uh, I, I think it's really important to understand them. But basically it's this. Um, when you are trying to get to what we refer to in the industry as product market fit, meaning you've built a product that a lot of people, you know, want to buy, you know, if it's a consumer product, millions of people, if it's an enterprise product, you know, somewhere between tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people or companies, um, you know, until you get that and, and they're willing to pay you enough money for it uh, so that your company works, um, you have to keep the company as small as possible or you should. It would behoove you to keep the company as small as possible for, I, I'll just say, two core reasons. The first is um, it's really, really hard to coordinate, okay, engineers, um, an understanding of the market, product architecture, competitive products, all of the things happening in technology, um, how the customer environments are changing and how their lives are changing, and zero in across a set of people on the right answer. Like that's really hard to do with five people or 10 people, it is impossible to do with 100 people. It just like, like you can't, the, the communication overhead is too high to get to like the correct product. Um, and so if you scale your company before you have product market fit, you'll probably never get product market fit. That's the first problem. The second problem is you'll end up burning up a tremendous amount of cash if you, for example, 
you know, build a sales force or try and build your second product before you've, you know, kind of figured out your first product. Uh, and so that's, you know, a lot of the lean startup methodology is around that. Now, people take it too far when they stay in that mode um, past product market fit. Uh, you know, it, I would say is the is the main kind of stupid thing that people do. And you know, once you have product market fit, your next job is to take the market because you know somebody else might have product market fit, and if they beat you to it, possession's nine tenths of the law. Um, you know, it's very hard to get those customers away from them, no matter how good your product is. And you know, the way to think about it is, you know, to get a product to product market fit, to get somebody to adopt it, it's got to be like ten times better than the existing product. Um, and you may have something that's 10 times better than the existing product, but your competitor might have something that's eight times better. And if they get there first, your product's never going in. And so, uh, you know, you've got to take the market, which means, you know, scaling up sales and marketing, you know, building the next set of features, doing all that kind of thing, which takes a lot more people. And, you know, that's when your startup may, you know, be considered fat. Um, but I think too fat when you have product market fit market fit is better than too skinny. And when you don't, too skinny is better than too fat is probably the way I would, the simple way to think about it. There's a lot more details, but that's that's the basics. Yeah, so the critique that comes to mind for a lot of people on this structure, because, you know, the structure, I was supposed to say, the structure makes sense with a, a, with a, with a big assumption. Um, and the assumption is that the thing that you're trying to build can be built with a relatively small number of people. Um, yeah, right, 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 um, right. So the objection that comes yeah, up so, is like, is so this Waymo, just like, Way, yeah, right? Waymo is a good example of a something that could not be built with lean startup methodology. Yeah. So how as a CEO do you think about if you're just like, look, like my plan is just to build, yeah, it's to build a self-driving car, it's to build, you know, a something that is going to be like, it's, look, it's just I, you know, I can't build this without a hundred people or. 200 people yeah. or 500 people. And by the way, you know, we're in a, we're in a flush fundraising environment. Like, I think I can actually go raise the money to do that. Like yep. what, what then, like what, what advice then do we give that's differently than we would give to somebody who's executing a more classically startup model? Yeah. Well, I, I think then you really have to uh, decompose the problem so that you don't, that you don't create too much communication overhead and dependencies across those hundred people. So yep. Meaning, um, you know, and Amazon's got this concept of the two pizza team. And what that basically means is, look, once you get past 10 people on a team, that team has to be interfaced with through APIs and microservices and those kinds of technological ideas, not through talking and meetings. Um, right. And I think, you know, architecturally, if you don't have that kind of approach, you can never build something like that, um, you know or win with something like that in, in the modern era. Uh, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know how many people are at Waymo. I think it's probably 2000 now and they've not yet kind of shipped the product per se. So um, clearly, and, and, and I think by all accounts, they're ahead in the industry. So um, yeah, that's a great counterexample. Yeah. One of the things we often talk a lot about is, um, you know, basically it's like, what, basically is, is there a set of missing startups, which are basically, you know, startups that are going off to solve like much, much larger scale challenges from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, do those need to be fundamentally staffed at a much higher level out of the gate? Do they need to be financed at a much higher level 
we, we've, we have, you know, lots of theories on this, but like we debated that. And then one of the interesting things about the question is it's actually like, okay, what, what would you cite as like the two most ambitious cold start kind of startups kind of, you know, trying to do these kind of very large, extraordinary things in the last, you know, 20 years. And generally, you, you know, that, that aren't just, that aren't quote unquote, just software, just bits, you know, but get into the real world and get into atoms, for example. And, and those two are basically right. Tesla and SpaceX, right. It's, yeah. it's, it's sort of two giant <laughs> cases. <laughs> Same guy. <laughs> Well, number one, same guy. So yeah. So there's first of all, there's 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 a there's a very big embedded question, which is how do we get more Elon Musk's, which has maybe been a topic we should bite off on a later on a later program. Yeah, that's um, a long one. Yes, um, but um, let's even assume that we can figure that out, potentially through cloning. Um, uh, you know, the other question, the other question is like, well, you know, did they actually require a different, like, were they actually different than what we're describing? Like, were, were they actually that fat? which is to say that both of those companies kind of famously slash notoriously actually raised money using the sort of classical venture staged, you know, round by round model. Um, mm -hmm. in, they, they both actually started with like pretty tightly constrained original problem, yeah. uh, the, the problems that they were trying to solve. And, you know, fam famously Tesla had their, I think they solved on their website, their, their, their big grand vision, which is like, you know, the four step process to basically yeah. solve climate change. And like step one was just like ship the Lotus Elise Roadster, uh, which was an existing car, but you know, with a, with electric engine swapped in. And so they, they, you know, they set the original product design. The original product design was not the Model S. It was the, this modified Roadster. And then similarly, SpaceX, you know, in the very beginning had, uh, you know, quite, quite modest, you know, they wanted, you know, first they had to get the rocket to hop, <laughs> right? And yeah. There's YouTube compilations of the, all the different SpaceX rockets over the years and the trials. And like the first rockets were pretty modest. Uh, yeah. you know, cause they were just trying to like get the thing to lift off and land again. Um, and so it's like, you know, Tesla and SpaceX, interestingly, are not great arguments for a fundamentally different way of building companies than the existing venture model. Um, I, th yeah. I think if Elon were here, he would say it was really hard to build an existing model. And there were points when he almost lost both companies and, you know, maybe there would have been, maybe there would have been a less stressful mm -hmm. way to do it. You know, with <laughs> more money. But people. I think part of his personality is to almost lose the company. Yeah. Right. He well, is. This, he does. This, I mean, yeah. part of the re his greatness is he pushes things right to the limit. Yeah. And his company. Right. And as a consequence of that, you know, you could also say, look, he, he, he keeps his companies on edge on purpose. Like, you know, his companies are always sharp. Right. They're, they're, they're all they're They're never as far at least as far as I can tell, like Elon's companies, they're never complacent. Right. They're never, you know, they're never overrun with meetings. They're not, they, you never hear the complaints about Elon's companies that you hear about other big companies. Right. You hear other, other complaints, but like you never hear the complaint that it's become a big stodgy bureaucracy. Um, and so he's, he's apparently able to keep these things focused, even on high scale to this kind of laser beam precision, um, you know, that's, that's more characteristic of an early stage startup. So, yeah, that's a, uh, yeah, I, I, and I, like, I think that communication and, uh, you know, constraints and a small team are it, like, you can move off of that, but it's really, really hard. Um, you know, then th your, the operational complexity gets massive really quickly. Whereas if you kind of get to incremental milestones and, and have kind of tight communication and, and, uh, and that kind of thing, you know, and, and real constraints, it's just, you're much more likely to succeed, I, I would say. Yep. Yep. Well, in Tesla, I think SpaceX runs differently, but in Tesla, he famously runs, you know, most of the important meetings himself. Yep, which is which is the other, the other, which is something I guess you know Steve Jobs also did, but most most CEOs won't do. Um, okay, good. Let's see. Okay, we're gonna go. Okay, we're gonna go to a, a conceptual question now. Uh, so I'll I'll start with this one, and we'll get Ben's reaction. Uh -huh. So uh, Andrew Ruiz asks, 
um, odds of AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, which is kind of the current term for kind of what you might call true AI, which is like basically AI that thinks like people, you know, thinks thinks like people do, or can you know yeah, can do sentence. the kinds of things people can do. Yes, sentience. Yep. Uh, what are the odds of AGI happening in the next 50 years? Um, if possible, doesn't it disrupt every other sector? So uh, I'm going to make the case, basically, I'm not going to give a single answer on this. I'm going to make a case that this is a, actually a very complex question. And, then I, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that by reference to like the sort of one of the standard kind of uh, uh, people who talk about, you know, very, by the way, brilliant guy, but a, a brilliant guy who talks about this a lot is famously Ray Kurzweil. Uh, and if you read Ray Kurzweil's books, he has these, you know, very specific predictions of when AGI happens. Um, and basically, and this is, you know, this is in his various books. He basically says, look, it's a, it's a function of like the number of neurons in the brain. And then it's the function of basically the silicon and software kind of equivalent to that. And then he basically has this chart that basically shows the level of sort of complexity, like the number of connections in the brain, and then basically the curve of computers, right, kind of rising up to meet that. And then there's a crossover point. I forget exactly when, but it's like somewhere in the 2030s. Yeah, 2040, 2050. Yeah, yeah. Dep it depends. Yeah, yeah. Depends how you count, right? It depends. It's, it's, yeah. Part of it is like, yeah, neurons aren't chips, right? And so you got to figure out like how to do some sort of apples to apples comparison. But, but um, yeah, it's, it's sort of like whatever. The singularity, yeah. So and then basically what he says is at some point in the next 20 or 30 years or, you know, 15 years, depending on how you count, but at some point in sort of our lifetime, you know, lifetimes of people who are, you know, you know sort of 50 or below today, uh, at some point there will be this crossover where it'll be the singularity. And what he basically says at that point, like everything changes and in ways that we won't understand and can't predict because at that point the computers are smarter than people, right? And then the computers basically, you know, make, make smarter computers and then basically they cascade into this level of super intelligence that we can't possibly match. And then, you know, they're, they're the gods, we're the insects and kind of that's how it goes. Um, and I, I guess I'd say like that, that, that is a, and by the way, like I say, he's a brilliant guy. And so that, and he studied this, this issue for many years and he's worked on this problem for a long time. And so he, he may, he may well be right. And that may be the, the best theory. Um, I would argue for a somewhat more nuanced view or somewhat, a somewhat more complex analysis, uh, without such a clean answer. Um, and I would do it. I, would, I have three kind of pairings here, kind of on the, on the one hand, on the other hand. That I want, I want to go through. So, so on the one hand, it is true there has been enormous progress in AI, especially in the last decade, right? And, that, and that's significant because, like, when I was in college, when I was getting my CS degree in the late '80s, early '90s, like, basically, like, we, the, the industry, the, the sort of CS world had almost given up on AI at that point because there had just been like 40 years of disappointment. Um, and then <laughs> yep. it's like really significant, like how much, how much, you know, to the point now where we actually, you know, do have like, you know, self-driving cars and so forth. So. With the um, same algorithms, you know, by the way, essentially the yeah. same algorithms that when in the nineties, when you were in school. <laughs> yeah. It turns, out neural, right, it turns out neural networks work. We just like, yeah, our computers were just too slow. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, like enormous progress uh, in the last decade, um, on the other hand, there's this famous puzzle in AI called Moravex paradox. Um, and it's the observation basically Basically, it's the observation that we have like computers that can do things like, you know, sift through, you know, I don't know, like enormous amounts of data and come up with all these patterns and, you know, figure out how to like run a self-driving car at 60 miles an hour and do all these incredible things, um, play video games, you know, like all these things that involve sort of more advanced levels of reasoning. Um, and yet we still don't have a computer that can fold your clothes. Right. Yeah. Like you still can't say to the computer, make me breakfast. You can't, still can't say to the computer, like clean the bathroom. Like there's no bathroom cleaning computer, right? Uh, no bathroom cleaning AI, and you, you would think like that might be like a pretty pretty good thing to build because nobody likes cleaning bathrooms. Um, <laughs> and yet, like we're not even remotely close to a bathroom cleaning AI. Like there, I, I like not even remotely close. Like we have no idea how to do that. Um, and, and this is what was called Moravex paradox, which basically is that the more abstract the problem, the more it's sort of in the realm of sort of intellect and reasoning, the easier, the, the, the like the, the more likely we are to have AI advances 
the more it intersects with the real world and sort of anything involving like real world, basically fuzziness um, and, uh, you know, complexity and variability, um, you know, <laughs> imagine an AI that you would yeah. trust to take care of your infant, right? Like yeah. not likely anytime soon. Well, the, it's um, funny. The biggest challenge in uh, self-driving cars is basically humans. Like how do you, it, like they can react, right. they can already deal with rain, sleet, crazy roads, all that kind of stuff, obstacles, but like the behavior of a human on a bicycle <laughs> or crossing the street or driving another car is where all the edge cases that uh, make it dangerous are. Yes, right, exactly, right, exactly. You could, yeah, the hyper, the hyper logical oh. computer cannot anticipate the insane, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, individual driving down the street texting when they should be focusing on the uh, on the car ahead of them. Oh. Um, so, so that's a, on the one hand. On the other hand, a second one um, is, in a response, by the way, to, to, to the previous argument, is on the positive side, advances in AI tend to get downplayed as not AI. So, like, whatever the computers get good at, we tend to reclassify as like, oh, that wasn't that big of a deal. And the, the classic yeah. example of this was, was like computers playing chess, which is like for a long time, like computers playing chess and beating humans was like one of the holy grails of AI. And then, and then you know, later, yeah, because the like, smartest people blue. play chess, exactly, right. yeah. Yeah, if you could beat Gary Kasparov, then there, if, if you could have a computer that beats Gary Kasparov in chess, therefore it means the computer is smarter than Gary Kasparov, and Gary Kasparov is like maybe the smartest person alive, and so therefore like that would be a big deal. And then uh, Deep Blue comes along, beats Gary Kasparov, and everybody's like, well, that's not really AI. And so the, the AI people are like, you know, basically you keep you keep you keep basically pulling victory away from us. And basically, what's going to happen is we're just going to like solve more and more of these problems um, until ultimately we've solved all the problems, and you'll still not be calling it AI, but you know, we'll we'll actually have delivered it. Um, on the other hand, um, AGI, the concept of AGI and the sort of Kurzweil prediction includes what, what I refer to, I don't know if anybody else has used this uh, comparison, I refer to this as the, the underpants gnome argument. Um, and so for those of you who like South Park, uh, you may remember there was a famous episode of South Park where one of their, their friend Tweak was completely convinced that his underwear was being stolen in the middle of the night by the underpants gnomes. Um, and so they went on this big uh, kind of thing, stake out to try to catch the underpants gnomes. And of course, it turns out in South Park, the underpants gnomes are real. Uh, they do run around and steal your underpants. Um, and uh, during the episode, the underpants gnomes explain why they're stealing the underpants. And it's a very clever three-part plan. Uh, uh, part one of the plan is steal underpants. Uh, part two is question mark. And part three is profit. <laughs> Um, and so what I always find um, sort of, I would say, disconcerting about the sort of theories that sort of ever rising levels of computational complexity or, you know, neural net, you know, processing speed or whatever will ultimately like it sort of all it's basically like basically all of a sudden consciousness will arrive. Right. Or sentience will arrive. Right. There will be like this basically breakthrough moment where basically complexity is the answer to the question of where consciousness comes from. And when you reach a certain level of complexity, like consciousness kind of happens, it sort of materializes. And like. That's a possibility, and of course you can't rule that out. But I don't, I don't see any reason to believe that's the case. Um, and I don't know. Part part of it is because, like, if you actually, you know, as the deeper you are in neuroscience, like it, like neuroscientists don't really understand that much after all this time of how the brain works, of how the human brain works, right? Like, like for example, like, okay, what's the seat of consciousness in the human mind? Like, where is the seat of consciousness in the human mind? Like, what you know, what is that thing? Where does it come together? And, and the, the sort of uh, the, the sort of scientists who know the most about that question, my understanding is they're actually anesthesiologists. Um, and the reason is because they now know with great precision how to turn consciousness off. Uh, right. Right. But they don't know how to make it like that. That doesn't give them any sort of leg up in figuring out like, OK, here's how we actually like construct your consciousness. And so 
I just kind of think I just kind of think there's this big underpants gnome kind of hand wave in there, which is like basically at this point magic happens. Um, yep. And I don't know, you know, look, maybe somebody's got this figured out. If they do, they, they haven't told me yet. I would I would love to learn about it. Um, and then my final, on the one hand, on the other hand, gets to the second part of the question, which is, you know, wouldn't AGI kind of disrupt every other sector of the economy and you know maybe human life? And and I would say here here that you get into the economic argument, um, which is on the one hand, you know, true AI potentially obviously would displace a lot of existing labor. Um, you know, where there's lots of jobs that, in, in theory, a computer could do. Um, on the other hand, it, what economists will tell you, and this is sort of micro, this is not macroeconomy like fantasy land, this is like microeconomy of like how the mechanics of the economy work, is that basically the role of more advanced technology in the economy is actually not job displacement over time or wage uh, sort of depression. It's actually the opposite, um, which is more advanced technology leads to a higher rate of productivity growth which is literally like the economic system is able to produce more with less. And then what ends up happening is productivity growth is the engine that both causes jobs to get created because productivity growth frees up spending that used to be spent on something that can now be spent on something else that's new. Yeah. Um, and then productivity growth also drives income up, right? Because a human working with a smart machine is like much more productive than the human working without the smart machine. And so the human with the smart machine makes a lot more money. And, and by the way, you see that everywhere in the economy today. Like, you know, you have people, you know, by the way, including people like Ben and me, but many people in many professions, um, you know, artists in many of the professions where they're just fundamentally much better at what they do because they're working with a smart machine and they make a lot more money today than they, you know, than they would have 50 or 100 or 200 years ago as a result of that. And so, you know, really well-functioning AI that got basically linked with human creativity um, and, you know, the things that basically humans continue to do well, um, you know, that maybe aren't so easy for the machines to do like that, that pair, like, for example, it, it may be the whole concept of artificial intelligence is just like kind of a bad concept because it kind of indicates this kind of either or kind of thing. It may be that the much the, that the actual thing that is in fact happening and that will continue to happen is what you might call like augmented intelligence, right? Which is basically take human intelligence and augment it with machine intelligence. Um, and then in that case, like if, if you actually had basically an explosion of productivity growth through AI, then you would have this just basically this gigantic economic windfall um, in the form of just a huge amount of both job creation and, and, and income to wage growth, which, by the way, this is not a crazy thing to say. This is what actually the Industrial Revolution actually provided to us. And this is what the computer revolution has provided to us. And so, you know, this would basically be an argument that that, that phenomenon will continue. Um, and so e even as AI gets better and better, I think it is like unless you're really willing to make the stretch all the way to a godlike superintelligence that does everything and humans are completely useless, unless you're willing to stretch it that far, most other, I think, sort of reasonable scenarios actually have this being a very good news story uh, for, uh, you know, for, for basically for humanity and for what people can do. So, Ben, see, see what you think of that. Yeah, so, like, that was such a comprehensive answer that, um, and I, I, I agree with it um, generally. And I, I would just point out that, you know, people have predicted... Uh, as soon as we got, you know, as soon as artificial intelligence started getting good in 2012, that it would take away all the jobs. And I think that kind of the opposite happened all the way up into the leading into the pandemic. And of course, we lost a lot of jobs there, but it had nothing to do with AI. It had to do with COVID. Um, and, you know, then if you go back to kind of the whole history of automation, starting with the Industrial Revolution, um, we've just gotten higher and higher employment the whole way. Uh, so to your point, um, yes, we got rid of 90% of the farm jobs, um, which is, as, as, uh, you've explained to me many times suck, uh, having grown up in that area. Um, you know, we've created just a dizzying array of, of new jobs. And I think that, uh, you know, kind of people pundits often 
I, I think people with a scarcity mindset that there are only so many jobs uh, just underestimate human creativity and and uh, and you know what's possible. And I, I think that I, I believe that's the way the future is going to go. Um, okay, good. Let's go to two. Uh, let's go to two remaining questions, and then we'll go to go to our recommended books. So, uh, Ben, this is one for you in, entirely. Um, uh, so no. this, is a, this is a fantastic question, and I'm, I'm happy to yeah. ask it. And I am going to. I'm, I'm going I'm to muzzle myself. I'm going to both mute and actually put on a put on a uh, put on a put on a stuff a handkerchief in my mouth because I cannot say a thing on this topic. Uh, but Ben can. So, uh, Paulo Trezentos asks. Um, incumbents um, were always, or let's say generally always, beat by startups because at the end of the day, startup culture creates better products. Um, due to the innovator's dilemma or other reasons, um, are network effects today so strong that GAFA, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, uh, scale, big tech uh, can, in spite of everything, um, you know, now deliver better products than startups um, and basically, um, you know, win uh, against startups? Yeah, so you know, interestingly, um, GAFA doesn't mention Microsoft, uh, and you know, you you'll recall, Mark, <laughs> um, that uh, when we were building Netscape, Microsoft had 97% uh, desktop operating system share, and there were no smartphones, so 97% of the computers basically ran Microsoft as an operating system, and then it used that operating system to create a uh, kind of invincible advantage and then that which was a very a stronger network effect i'd argue than any of the gaffes have currently um and they you know like they used it to just smite their opponents and they also you know at that time were building pretty good products you know like you know, certainly they could build be you know with all their money and might and their control of the operating system they could build better uh products than um startups for example they, I think the, the motto of uh, of Windows 3.1 was Windows 3.1 ain't done till Lotus won't run. <laughs> you know, like they would literally put in bugs that would wipe out the competitors and things like that. Uh, so, you know, it was a very, um, you know, powerful network effect. What ended up breaking it wasn't a startup building a better product so much as um, an architectural shift that started with Netscape um, that rendered a lot of their kind of network effect and lock-in um, obsolete, uh, and particularly Win32 API, which was the kind of key interface that everybody had to write to to access 97% of the world's computers, um, kind of moved. <laughs> you know, we kind of forklifted it up into the web, and then Microsoft is still one of the most valuable companies, but they I don't think anybody would say that they can consistently build better products than startups today. Uh, so that, you know, that was the thing that kind of lowered them in the pecking order down to the GAFA level. <laughs> um, now, with GAFA, you know, I think that as long as we're on Web 2, um, they're going to be very tough. Uh, but as we get to Web 3, I think that, you know, that's a similar kind of architectural shift um, that will start to cause them a lot of problems and cause a giant uh, emergence of new kinds of products. And if you look at things like NFTs and distributed finance, they're all being built on Web3. None of them are being built on, you know, like they don't care about Google or Amazon or, or Facebook in that sense. Um, and so we're Apple. Well, they do care a little bit about Apple. Uh, uh, 
you know, and, and Google from a from a phone perspective. But they are like, you know, for the most part, they they don't care because uh, it is a different architecture and a different platform, a different computing platform. Uh, and I think that's how that changes. I don't think that I, I think it's very hard to take them head on. Um, and I think they'll be very very powerful in this era for sure. Ben, what's your um you know, whatever you're comfortable talking about here, but like, what, what's your assessment of the, of the, let's say GAFAM and what, you know, whatever you think goes in the list companies, like what, what like uh, how, what's your assessment of like where they are in terms of like figuring out crypto and like, when, when would you expect if at all kind of each of them to kind of really figure it, figure it out or, or not? Well, I think that they, they may figure it out, but like, like with, so the, the problem for Microsoft with the internet was, um, you know, at first they fought it like crazy. And then they embraced it um, and tried to kind of modify it to be proprietary like their old stuff. But it was never as locked in as their old stuff, no matter how hard. Like, so they survived the transition, but they were never the same. And they're not the same. Um, and I think that uh, the problem with a big central service moving to a decentralized architecture is it will like yank all the value out of the centralized service. And so that it's just a very challenging move, I would say. And then, you know, in addition, the kind of, you know, it was kind of like Linux versus Windows. Like Microsoft understood, my, you know, open source was a problem, but like they couldn't open source Windows. And if they did, nobody trusted them. And so I think, you know, you have that same problem with GAFM where, like, yeah, they could come out with a decentralized service, but who's going to trust the guys who make their living on your data to, like, provide that service where you have privacy and control of your own stuff? Like, it's just a really hard rebranding as well. So um, I think they'll, you know, look, they're, I think they're all looking at it and paying attention to it, but it's a tremendous amount of will to actually jump across that, that particular fence, I think. Okay. I will, um, I will leave it at that. And I will later on, I will, I will, um, I will, I will muffle into my pillow late tonight, my hour and a half of thoughts. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that nobody can hear them. Uh, okay. We're going to go to the last question. And I would say this is, this is my favorite question uh, of any question we've gotten so far. And it's also the thing that I think the most about. So I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, and we could probably spend actually several shows on this topic and maybe we will. Um, so, uh, Pharaoh, a novel asks this, Ben, this is the entire question. Um, what is the internet? <laughs> that is such an and awesome question, isn't it? It's an absolutely fantastic question because like very clearly the technical definition is not the most important. Like whatever the internet is, it's not just TCP IP and a network designed to survive a nuclear war. It is beyond that now. So, um, so what is the internet? So, you know, this is one of those questions where, you know, you probably have like 70 different answers, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to propose an answer and then, um, uh, and then, uh, we'll see, then I'll see what you think. Maybe we'll, at least say, maybe we'll continue yes. this another, other, other conversations. So, so I think the internet, I would propose the internet, like the, the, the primary, the, the biggest single, the, the biggest thing the internet is, the most important thing is it, it is the global hive mind. Um, so it, it is quite literally the interconnection. We, we're just talking a lot about like, you know, consciousness and the, the, the brain and how the brain is composed of neurons. And, and, and it's, it's like the, the internet is basically that at the global level. Um, you know, so we're individually, we're the neurons. Um, and then the, the internet increasingly is, is, is the hive mind or the, the global brain. 
Um, another way to think about this, I'm somebody, I, this wasn't from me, somebody, I forget who, but somebody, somebody said it's, it's it, internet is as if everyone on the planet now has some level of read, write access in everyone else's mind. Um, and like, that's new. Like there were approximations of Very this in the new. past, <laughs> but like this level of like, in fact, Ben, maybe the metaphor is like, we've moved from batch processing, uh, reading, uh, read, write access to Google's minus interactive. Or something yeah. like that, um, which is like this level of sort of real-time, simultaneous, you know, fast cycle, um, you know, read-write access into people's minds is a is a new thing. Um, uh, I'm gonna um, read this the second. I don't normally read read quotes on this, but I, I I can't resist this. This one is too good not to read. So the the the, the sort of most interesting thing I've ever heard in this concept. I'm gonna read the paragraph long quotation. And so this is from a, a, a guy who's sort of pretty famous now. So Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist by background. And I should disclaim this by saying Jordan Peterson is controversial on many political topics. The following is not a political statement, so this has nothing to do with politics. This is sort of a this is sort of a psychological observation. Um, so he's he was asked a question, and actually he was interviewed by the magazine Psychology Today some years back, um, and he was asked basically about he was asked about the nature of consciousness, um, which led to this very interesting answer. He says, even if consciousness can be described at a physiochemical level. Our understanding of what physiochemical means will transform as we get more sophisticated in our attempts to understand consciousness. Even if consciousness is an entirely reducible phenomena, ideas still inhabit us like personalities, and they inhabit us as a collective like uh, as a collective like personalities as well. You can think of the entire internet as a place where ideas embedded in cyberspace are having a war, and it's not much different than the war of gods in heaven, which has been taking place since there's been human beings. If you think of individuals as neurons in a web, you can think of gods as entities that inhabit that web. They're embodied ideas that persist across long periods of time, and they do go to war. That's how polytheism turns into monotheism across time. It's a whole thing we could talk about there, but that, that is true. Uh, sometimes these wars are real. They aren't just conceptual. People actually die to determine which god is going to rule. So there's a hyperspace consisting of networked minds in which these archetypal ideas exist, at the same time that they exist in each person. You're a mirror of the broader social reality. You're a node in it, but you're a mirror of it as well. So I had to read that paragraph like 40 times. Um, and and I, I, I would highly, highly suggest everybody do that because there's, there's a lot packed in there. Yeah, but it, but it goes to this paragraph. idea. It goes to this idea basically, right, of like of, of global brain. And so basically what's happened is like we're all nodes in a, as I said, like not historically totally unprecedented, but of this kind, scale, scope, speed. Um, you know, this is unprecedented. And, and I would say, like, I, I think, in, in my view, this is why the level of amazement uh, in the world about the Internet is so high and also why the level of freakout is so high. Right. And as we sort of observe all these like societal changes and all these super hot political topics and everything else kind of, you know, spinning around all around us and cultural changes happening all over, um, you know, and a lot of it either, you know, a lot of it either driven by the Internet or let's just say highly, highly coincident with the Internet. Um, I, I think this is why the level of freakout is so high, because I, I do think this is new and different in important ways. Um, and so, and I, and I think as a consequence, like the, inter the, I also think as a consequence, like the internet's a really, really, really big shift in human behavior in the long run. And we're probably still at the very beginning of what that means. Yep. Yeah. I, I was going to say that my understanding is it's a series of tubes and if they get clogged, we're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and it may be that that, 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 that definition may, 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 may still be the best one. <laughs> oh. I don't have much to add to that. Like, I thought that was a, like a, a, a great way to think about it, and it explains a lot of what we're going through as a society is 
you know, we're in the very early days of the formation of the hive mind. And, uh, you know, we're not sure exactly how to handle it yet. Well, I'll give you an idea. I'll give you an idea. So I just like to take another psychological lens on it, which is basically, it's like how many, how directly are we confronted with other people's emotions, right? And it's like, yeah. we're very used to being confronted with other people's emotions, like at the low, you know, at the, at the sort of, you know, within the home, right? So within a family, we're very used to that because you kind of live in that context, right? Um, and then maybe, you know, amongst your extended family, maybe in your small town, right? Maybe in your, on your, you know, maybe on your college campus, maybe in your workplace, like the emotions of the people around you are like clear and present and you, 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 you have to deal with them like they're right there and it, it affects your, your day-to-day life. Um, but then there's, you know, these higher levels of abstractions. And so it's like, okay, what about the emotions at like a city level? Right. And like, as an example, like you spend a lot of time in New York city, like, you know, <laughs> it's a, you know, different kind of dynamics unfold at that level of scale. Right. Um, yep. And that, right. And then at the national level, you know, as, as we all experience, you know, with national politics, like things, things get pretty intense, um, you know, but then there's this idea of like, okay, what about the global level? And people already had trouble kind of thinking about things on a global level, even before the internet. And now it's like, okay, what about on a you know national level or global level, where it's not just these things aren't even abstractions. This is like yeah. literally any, like any individual's emotion anywhere in the country and potentially anywhere on the planet can like literally like be put like in front of us <laughs> and like, like, like basically just like, it's not a fire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly, just, right? Yeah. And by the way, maybe for good, right? Maybe maybe it's something that we really ought to be aware of, and maybe it's something we really ought to care about more. Maybe it's something that we really ought to become involved in, right? Um, or maybe it's just like, you know, maybe it's just like in an, evol- in an evolutionary sense, we're just not adapted to be able to cope with that level of emotional input, and we, we basically yeah. be, become unbalanced as a result, or, or, or maybe both of those things. Yep. I, I think the latter is for but, sure true. <laughs> there's, some, there's some evidence for both uh, for both theories. Yeah. Um, okay, good. All right. Well, we're almost at, we're almost at time, so let's close on uh, book yeah. book or other form of media sure. choices of the week. And so, Ben, why don't you start? Yeah, so I want to recommend um, actually a couple of books by uh, a historian by the name of Josephus, uh, and he's a very very interesting guy. So, first of all. Um, you know, he was the guy who wrote history the way Mark, you and I talk about this a lot, but the, the the kind of right way in that, like, he wrote it. He was a guy in the time writing the history of the time, um, and yep. he was very a special kind of character because he was a Jew. And, like, for those of you who don't know this history, you know, one of the great mistakes uh, the Jewish people made was to take on the Roman Empire, <laughs> which turned out to be a bad mistake, uh, almost wiped out the entire Jewish race. Um, but Josephus, uh, you know, fought for the Jews, was captured by the Romans, was so smart that the Romans actually uh, put him in charge of quite a bit of stuff, and he kind of became a consigliere type character in the Roman army. So he saw the war between the Romans and the Jews from both sides, and he basically recorded it very meticulously with no, like, real opinion on, you know, well, this guy's a bad guy because he did this, or this guy, he's just like, this is what happened. Um, And it's just a fascinating, it's fascinating to understand just how different um, that time was and those people were. Uh, And, you know, one of my kind of favorite kind of episodes, the books are The Jewish War and the Antiquities of the Jews. And, uh, you know, one of my kind of favorite kind of passages in it was, you know, he's describing King Herod, who, Uh, Some people know because he kind of legendarily put the hit on the baby Jesus. But um, he also, you know, he was an important king and, you know, the Jews in those days. And he was so paranoid of his family that, um, you know, he ended up 
basically killing his wife and kids. Um, but like, he was actually right to be paranoid. And so that like, that's how like different <laughs> that whole kind of society was. And you know, like, it, basically people were being like killed all around him every day. And, you know, it's just like murder central, like every single page was another murder, another <laughs> kind of killing and, and this kind of thing. And it's just, uh, you know, just a great kind of interesting, like the history at the exact time, the Bible, you know, the, the exact time of Jesus in the Bible, here's the history of what's going on in the exact same area. Um, and it's just so different than the Bible for one thing. Um, and then it's so different than histories we read today where everybody's making these moral judgments on the people of the time. And, and this thing is just like, now this is what happened. And, uh, it's just a, it's, it was just a great way to kind of understand um, the world in its time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, for those of you who studied Roman history, like there's a lot to learn. Um, things were not quite as different as we like to imagine. <laughs> yeah. A lot of things, some things have changed. A lot of things haven't changed. Um, yes, sir. Yes, yes. Good. Okay, great. And then let's see. Um, yeah, okay, my book, my book, on a totally different topic. Um, a little bit of a follow-up, by the way. My, my, my book recommendation last week was Millionaire, the story of John Law uh, and the invention of paper money. My book recommendation this week uh, is, a, is a short book that is excellent, um, and I highly recommend. And this is the kind of book where you could really uh, make an impact at a party or at a, uh, your, uh, you know, a public family dinner by handing this out to everybody. Um, in this uh, environment. Um, it's called um, Why It's Okay to Want to Be Rich. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a controversial title there. Controversial title. So Why It's Okay to Want to Be Rich, written by uh, I mean, a very, very sharp, actually, economist named Jason Brennan, uh, who's, a, who's a great writer, great thinker. Um, and it's, it's, it's great because it's, it's the short for it's, it's the literal short form argument, um, the, the actual uh, and, and quite literally the moral and ethical argument. Uh, for why it's okay to want to be rich, which is to say, like, and, and you know, what, what he really does is he goes through basically he says, you know, so, sort of like what, what at a fundamental level like actually makes people rich, and and sort of in, in you know sort of economics the thing that makes people like there's basically two ways to get rich. One is to like go like monopolize something that you shouldn't monopolize, um, yeah. you know. But the main way that people get rich, and you see this in all the like lists of you know the Forbes 400 and all these things, um, is by providing you know a good or service. That other people want, mm -hmm. right? And that other people yeah, right. Value. Making making great contribution, you get a great re reward. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's great exactly. Point. And then there's yeah, and then there's actually been a lot of uh, research in economics over the years. Like, so for example, there's this like, there's idea of kind of economic spillover effects. And so there's 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 research that basically shows it's like it's like on average over time, um, if you look at basically like what is the economic gain that's created by something like you know the automobile or the computer chip or whatever, you know, the computer operating system, um, you know, there's this question of like how much of the value that gets created, the economic value gets created actually goes to the inventor or to the company that actually sells that mm -hmm. product. Um, right. And then how much of the economic gain is sort of surplus that goes to other people, which is to say the customers and broader society. And mm -hmm. the, the conventional analysis is it's usually the, the inventor or owner of the, of the thing is it's like one or 2% um, and mm -hmm. the surplus is like 98%. Um, yeah. And so most of the economic value uh, to you know, to most new things that are are, are created, um, uh, sort of flows flows outward, um, and, and that's sort of in the, in the micro, which is like literally right. The the reason somebody buys something right in, in any competitive market is because like they're better. They, they believe they're better off buying it than not buying it. They're better off making the exchange and not making the exchange. And so the the customer is making a positive some view of the transaction, um, and then of course the the seller is 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 engaging from their perspective in the same thing. And so there's a there's sort of a a net increase in you know sort of let's say welfare that happens on both the side of the seller and the buyer. And this is, you know, the theory of trade. This is like why trade is good and why free trade is good. 
Um, and so he, he kind of elaborates that, uh, that all the way out and then, and then provides a, a bunch of additional arguments. And so it's a, uh, let me say there are a, there are a large number of people these days who are striving mightily to become rich and feeling incredibly guilty about it. Um, yeah. this is a book that it, at least, uh, you might read for the argument of why, of why you don't need to feel guilty about it, uh, and why it might actually be a good thing, not just for yourself, but for, for your broader society. Um, yeah, well, so I, I think people will like, it, will like it a lot. Yeah, that's a very timely book. You know, I was just uh, kind of reading that people were angry that uh, Elon Musk was asked to host Saturday Night Live because he's too rich. And, you know, I was thinking, wow, that's so incredible that people are mad that he's rich because he got rich by literally kind of advancing uh, electric cars by 10 or 20 years and then by, like, providing – uh, things in space that we probably wouldn't have had for 30 or 40 years where like everybody in the world can get the internet, for example. Right. And, right. you know, like it's hard to imagine a bigger contribution and people like look right past the contribution and just look for his 1% portion of the reward. So that, that that's a very timely book in that way. Yeah, that's, a, that's absolutely perfect example. Okay, great. Benjamin, 805, thank you once again. All right. And uh, thank great. you to our uh, wonderful audience and everybody who has questions. And we will see you. Actually, we have hopefully a special show for next week. So we're still uh, lining up yeah. for and, sure. But uh, join us next week at the same time. And thank you, Paul and Felicia and Jules, for helping us uh, get the room started. Thank you.